Good afternoon. Welcome to the Task Podcast. Uh, today we are in Chiang Mai. Uh, most of the podcasts are in Chiang Mai, and um, just down the road from my house, we're on Canal Road, and with Dustin Joseph. Uh, Dustin is a uh, a trained chef, uh, originally from the U.S. Lived in Thailand a number of years. Worked worked and opened a number of restaurants here, which I've had the pleasure of of eating in. Um, but we're here to talk about here. We're here to talk about coffee today. Dust, Dustin runs uh, Left Hand Roasters. Did I get that right? Yep, correct. Cool. And um, yeah, we're here to here to talk about everything coffee and a few other subjects. Dustin and I know each other um, personally. Uh, Dustin lives or has lived in Pi. Uh, we both live down the road from each other. Uh, but let's jump straight into it. We're sitting in your little office here surrounded by coffee uh, surrounded by a big roasting machine um, I was here the other day yeah. uh, you know doing a, a tasting um, you know why coffee what was the inspiration um, you know what inspired you to jump into the the coffee space has it been a, a long journey I know this is fairly recent um, but you know what, what's got you into coffee what's it all about um, you know I think I didn't necessarily choose coffee coffee chose me uh, for multiple reasons. Um, it started about seven, eight years ago with my dad, actually. Uh, my dad was living out here as well and um, married a hill tribe lady from uh, the Lisu tribe. And their their background in agricultural in Thailand was mostly related to the opium trade. And um, she grew up in Hoi Nam Dang outside of Pai, growing and cultivating opium. Until wow. uh, she was, you know, she's probably about 50, late 50s, 60s now. So it's, uh, she, you know, she was up there until she was about 35, not really knowing anything from the outside world and, and in this uh, realm of just um, one, one focus agriculture. Yeah. So I think what, what changed is, um, which, why coffee is fascinating in Thailand is the, is the whole, you know, SEP, the uh, Royal Project incentive to empower individual communities through agriculture and also giving them an alternative crop to kind of do away with the with the opium trade. So uh, that was a big, a big part of it. And uh, I think, you know, early, mid-2000s is when we, we'd go up to the mountains anyway and, and visit the, the orchards or where they're growing tropical fruits and uh, rice and, and different, uh, you know, different agricultural practices. And we started noticing they had a lot of coffee. And shockingly, the, the locals growing it didn't even really know what to do with it. They didn't have a market for it. There was, a, it, was it was kind of, a, there wasn't much direction. So they were a little bit worried on, on what they were doing with this alternative crop that was put into place. Some places had more infrastructure than others. Um, but that's kind of where, where it started. We, we, we saw a crop, we saw something being produced that is also one of the most you know, sought after agricultural products in the world and one of the most traded in the world. So it was, it was kind of an interesting like, uh, moment when we said, hmm, uh, I wonder what we should, you know, wonder what we could do with the coffee or how we could help them actually you know, put it into, into market. Um, and that's you know that was kind of my dad's my dad's focus at that time. I was I was bouncing around the world, uh, doing more culinary work, um, studying you know culinary anthropology like we, we spoke about. Yeah. Uh, kind of the history of food of why we eat what we eat, 
and uh, it took a little while for me to get back into the coffee but my dad ended up building a coffee roaster um, he's he's kind of an engineer and designer and and you know seeing the crop seeing coffee being grown and not knowing what to do with it kind of gave him the motivation to to build and design his own coffee roaster and uh, that's kind of when I stepped in and, and you know started seeing interest in it as well um, you know mostly because it's a it's related you know it's a consumable it's something in the realm of culinary and and uh, you know it's fascinating the the complexity of coffee so it's always been something that I've, I've kind of enjoyed and the the parallels with uh, wine actually yeah. you know viticulture and, and producing wine and, and coffee have so many things in common uh, I've always been a wine lover so when I started getting into coffee I realized that it has the same like element of uh, of depth to it there's so much there's so much to it that it's, it's interesting and, and uh, I kind of dove into it and and some of the um in in some of the influences in terms of the way it grows as well right i notice on your coffee packs you talk about the elevation uh, presumably the weather has yes. a big bearing is it the same type of influences on coffee bean growth as it is on the, is the it, yeah the um wine. grapes that go into wine yeah right? of course it's uh it's exactly the same really it's the terroir and and a lot of different uh you know produce and you know everything everything that we grow is affected in the same way essentially but things that are as complex as coffee and and wine uh, it has a lot more opportunity to develop you know to to play with it through the agriculture of what you're growing it with in close proximity to uh, the water the air the nutrients you know everything that's in the soil uh, the varietal of what's grown you know and then down to the processing of you know when when the harvesting cherries are picked you know ripeness uh, processing of how it's actually processed pre-roast so it's you know yeah it's it's interesting so definitely yeah I mean just so definitely it's not something new by the sound of it it's been in the family it's something that's definitely found you it's been you've been around it for a long time I think I took a natural uh, it came naturally to me because my last 20 years of being in the culinary industry yeah, you know it has a lot of uh, similarities, and and roasting is what I'm I specialize in, and that's, you know, the same thing as uh, cooking. Yeah, you know it's how to extract flavor, and uh, finding your raw product, and then what do you do with that raw product, and you know through roasting like the Mollard reaction of actually browning something and creating flavor, uh, it made sense right away when I started roasting. I was like, okay, you you know the whole idea is to take the raw you know green product and then end in something that's uh, flavorful and, and and interesting so you know every bean's different and how good is um, Thailand Thai coffee I, I did a bit of research before and I was pretty interesting actually to I mean you know people know that Brazil is is known for coffee yeah um, I think Thailand came out number 25 what really surprised me that was Vietnam was number two on the list in terms of coffee production which I had no idea Thailand was down there at 25 um, mm -hmm. you know how localized is the industry and and you know is it, I mean you, you don't hear of Thai coffees when you're overseas but when you live here you hear about Thai coffee a lot actually 
you know I mean there's two questions yeah. in there I suppose what you know what's the industry like but how, how good's the coffee from a coffee a coffee lover's point of view you know the thing about Thai coffee and you know to go to the production side of things like you said the the countries that produce the most that's normally based on volume so it's the places that have been like automated and and, and uh, designated to produce and then we're also talking about two different you know very different kinds of coffee which are Arabica and Robusta so a lot of places are, are big Robusta producers as well like I think Vietnam has a lot of Robusta um, places like Brazil their their production's huge because they've they've dedicated de- dedicated it is a coffee producing country yeah um, early on you know since the you know the the Portuguese uh, a lot of people started they started introducing coffee there same with sugar and different kinds of uh, um, you know products that they could produce and then redistribute out to the world they looked at it as a cash crop and and uh, prime land to produce it so ju- just for our um, listeners um, and for me actually do you want to just break down what's the difference there you, you just used two term terms there robusta and yeah, arabica robusta and can you want to just talk the differences between those two types of of coffee yeah i mean uh arabica is typically higher elevation and it's and it's normally more sought after and uh value yeah uh or valuable it's 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 uh the higher end spectrum of coffee but things are changing people are starting to put robusta on a pedestal as well but uh just the effects of the caffeine the the quality of of the beans themselves um arabica has less less caffeine more flavor um, definitely different taste in, in general. Uh, so it's categorized by a type of It's a species. It's a species of so, plant. So it's a different plant. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, I mean, Arabica has its, you know, sub-varietals and, and Robusta does as well. Yeah. Um, Robusta has always been kind of looked at as a uh, cash crop because it's caffeine. Yeah. You know, they're, they're looking at it to extract the caffeine and then produce you know, three-in-one coffees, instant coffees, um, you know, a lot of the energy drinks, Red Bull, all like the Emroy Hasip, like all these different yeah. uh, energy drinks, it's Robusta. Which is so very popular here, yeah. probably more popular than coffee, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And that's yeah. been one of their crops. I mean, Red Bull comes from Thailand. And yeah, Robusta's course, always yeah. been a huge market in southern Thailand because Robusta normally grows closer to the equator. Where Arabica likes higher elevations, more temperate climates, um, harder to produce. Robusta gets more of a yield typically. Um, yeah, so I think they're just two different things. And you know, back to the other question as far as why Thai coffee's kind of emerging, it's because yeah. it's really the newest coffee market in the world, the newest coffee producing you know location because it's a. Uh, it's only been 40, 50 years that they've been growing coffee over here, Arabica. You know, Robusta's been a couple hundred years now, but I mean, you look at Arabica production in Brazil, it's hundreds of years. Yeah, okay. So it's uh, the fact that Thailand's emerging and every year the coffee quality gets better. Yeah. Um, it's, it's only been put on the map recently. Five years ago, I go to New York, I go to San Francisco, I go to, you know, Europe and, and ask people about you know, have you ever tried Thai coffee? You're just curious, and, and a lot of people will be like, what? Mm. You know, a year goes by, maybe, you know, another year goes by, oh, yeah, I've heard of it. Uh, to the point now that you'll find Thai coffee in, in various markets around the world. 
you'll find it in Europe. You'll find it in you know specialty coffee shops in the U.S. Um, what do the big guys do? Do they you know your Starbucks and your do they source locally? Do you know? You may not know about. It. <clears throat> I mean, it's not my. It's not yeah. something I know a lot about. But it's definitely the big guys. You know, the big guys follow the small guys. Yeah. Right. So whatever the small guys are doing that's trending and popular, you know, the big guys are going to jump on that, that bandwagon as well to try to capitalize on it. So you will see, you know, you're seeing a lot of the big, big companies starting to introduce these coffees. I mean, people like Blue Bottle introducing Burmese coffee last year and like, mm. you know, uh, Starbucks does have Thai coffee on some. It does. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. I mean, you can hear my ignorance somewhat. I, I drink coffee, but I, and I want, you know, I don't. There's a lot of people who say they know their coffees but I think the reality is they know the taste of a coffee but they don't know the history or the, yeah. the background but that's why I ask you these, these questions I mean I'm not necessarily a, a coffee expert as well because you know I'm more I'm more interested in the agriculture and the roasting and then when it goes yeah. into the barista realm or like the 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 society of, of coffee uh, fanatics I'm not you know I'm more in the culinary field as well so on that how do you do you I mean you we're sitting behind us here there's a there's a bunch of bags full of beans and you know the roasting machine here do you do you source from a supplier do you go direct to the villages um do you have a relationship with the actual growers and the farmers yeah that's that's the goal yeah you know and that's what i've been doing for the last you know i've been roasting coffee for about five years in thailand and only thai coffee so i've made a lot of connections with the farmers and and with these uh you know coffee producers in the last you know five six years um, and yeah, my my what I call my coffee brand right now it's it's a farmer driven, you know, coffee coffee business because I'm allowing the farmers to kind of dictate what they what they want to sell. Uh, I I pay you know direct trade fair trade with with the farmers, so I, I I allow them to. I'm not looking for the cheapest coffee. I'm looking for a quality coffee that actually supports communities. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I buy a lot of the coffee directly from the farmers, and then I work with producers that that support farmers as well. Uh, like my friend Ray from Thai High, uh, he's based in Prow and also has a spot in Mejo. Um, they work directly with the farms, but he does the processing and then helps with the distribution. So I, I do a lot of work with them because you know they've been at it for a long time, and they're you know community conscious of what they're doing they're uh they're still allowing the farmers to get the credit they're still allowing the they're still helping and reinvesting back into the into the community which is most important yeah um yeah and this is these these farmers that grow coffee is it a you know a piece of income alongside other pieces of farming income or are the people are these sustenance farmers or you know what it, or are people actually growing crops full time, and that's what they do? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a full time job to produce coffee, but at the same time, there's the big pushes of the year. Yeah, you know the harvesting and the processing. You know, around this time, we just we just passed it. Um, those are definitely the the most intense periods of the year. But a lot of people mix in agriculture on their property. Um, you know, growing different kinds of, let's say. Uh, up in like Maceway in, in Chiang Rai they, they produce a lot of macadamia they're producing a lot of like uh, high elevation fruits that are nice you know stone fruits uh, peaches plums apricots stuff like that yeah um, 
every region is slightly different. Uh, a lot of the coffee, or I've been working with a farmer in Tak, uh, Tak province. Like um, they grow a lot of fruits, uh, passion fruit. Um, you know, different kinds of uh, Thai Thai fruits. So that's that's interesting because all these things play a part of the coffee as well to have that cross pollinization and, and yeah. uh, um, affect the flavors. But yeah, I think it anyone anyone who grows and is in the agricultural business in general, they're gonna always experiment with growing other things. A lot of it's tea related because Thailand used to be a a big uh, tea producer for consumption. You know, there were tea drinkers before, and Assam tea is like uh, the main one. And it's like they also use it as like uh, miang, like the fermented tea leaf that they chew on it. It's a, it's a, it gives you this kind of uh, intense high caffeine high, and uh, it's very popular in, in northern Thailand, yeah. especially before. So a lot of the farms used to be, you know, they used to be tea farms. If they weren't tea farms, they might have been opium fields. If, if they weren't opium fields, they they might have just been raw land that, you know, certain communities were living on but not being able to produce a living make a living for themselves um just maybe to jump off topic a bit otherwise you know we'll, we'll do an hour of coffee and people will be uh yeah you know we'll get back to coffee but thailand <laughs> you've been here how long have you been in thailand you came here young right we, we were chatting the other day you were here for yeah 19. I, yeah I, moved, I came here when i was 18 yeah uh, to to kind of visit to travel and you've um, been so how old are you now if it's not a 34 34 Oh, so you came around eighteen, went back. So you're, I mean, you you're more American or more Thai now? What, you know, is this your country? I don't know. It's uh, a, <laughs> it's it's you know, it's a melting pot. But you know, back on my history, it's, I've always kind of, been through a melting pot. You know, growing up in the U.S., I was I was born in a Native American reserve in uh, okay, in Michigan. Uh, you know, I I only spent a couple years when I was young, and then and then moved to Colorado where I grew up in a further grew up into my teens in a, a Mexican, you know, Hispanic uh, community, Latin community. Uh, went to a bilingual school, you know, grew up around mostly, uh, you, you know, Mexican, El Salvadorian. Then just know, going Mex- back a bit, you were, so you were brought up on a, na- a Native American reserve. Yeah. So, so what, talk, talk to me about what it is. Being, I mean, my, my dad, I think it's the, maybe the hippie culture that, yeah. that decided people would lo- relocate in different areas and, and Northern Michigan was apparently a beautiful spot. And uh, there was a couple of reserves up there for, you know, the, some Native Americans. And uh, my dad decided to build a house, and it was like an interesting community, and that's pretty much where I grew up. So was that because um, you were connected to, you grew up on Native Americans, though, or you were connected? Um, I, I mean, I moved so young, and, and <laughs> as my dad tells it, he, he pretty much decided to move there because it was a beautiful, you know, place. And yeah. it was a nature and allowed, you know, him to buy a piece of land and build this beautiful house and, and kind of uh, live this life. I, I moved to Colorado when I was very young, so I don't really recall that. Yeah, um, right. But I still like hear stories, but it's just kind of interesting because I went from there to, you know, more of this Latin upbringing and then like moved here when I was pretty young. So it, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's all watered down. Yeah, I can see, I can relate. I mean, and then to Pi, which is, I mean, you were there back in what, two? 2000? 2004 no. is when 2004. I went there, and 2005 is when I decided to move back out here and kind of uh, 
uh, settle down a little bit. Yeah, right. And, and 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 figure out what I was gonna do. I mean, I was fascinated by the food as a young chef. I started working in restaurants when I was fifteen. Yeah. Um, by the time I came out here, I already you know was going through culinary school and, and worked in a couple. Helped open up a five star hotel in, in Boulder, Colorado. Um, but you obviously got hooked on Thailand in one way or another. You loved you loved the place, yeah. And yeah. you stayed in Pai for a long time, right? Yeah, I pretty much was located in the north always. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. still here. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, you know, the last the last couple of years, I've spent more time around Thailand. But yeah, I pretty much went straight up to Pai and uh, fell in love with just the nature yeah. and the diversity. I mean, people don't understand Pai is not this uh, backpacker kind of crazy spot. It's a melting pot of of, uh, of cultures, and you know, it's a crossroads of of uh, a lot of things. You know, trade routes from Yunnan, China, and the you know Dharma Trail of, of Buddhism that spread to like you know all the way to Eastern China, and um, you know, it's got a lot of different cultures hill tribes you know it's so interesting I mean I ask you because obviously I've got a house there you know I spent I've been going there for 10 years I I lived there for 4 years but you know I have people ask me people who live pie know pie but I think from an outside perspective you know people who look at my life a few years ago on Facebook like what is this place you know it's kind of known as the kind of hippie central on the on the backpacker trail but there's so much more to it hey in terms of history yeah which often gets overlooked is kind of sad because now it's becoming a different, you know, a different animal. When yeah. I, in 2005, six, seven is when I, I was really like placed there and then I obviously left a little while and came back. But it was a different, you know, in 2005 and six, it was, it was very different. It was on the back end of maybe. You still see it. Yeah. I mean, that essence of what it was is still there yes. in terms of the central community, right? But it's just there's about 10 layers on top now with, with which is not necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, with all the other elements of tourism, Chinese tourism, yeah. a lot more of the wealthy elite from Bangkok coming up because of the movies made there. But it's yeah. the, the yeah. central... Do you know a lot about the history of Pai? Because people tell me things. We didn't plan to chat about this, but yeah. I loved... You know, for example, you've got the mosques in the middle. Yeah. There, there seems to be generations of... Yeah. I don't know whether they are refugees, but the Muslim community that own a lot of the land yeah. uh, that I'm told came over from historically families or selling opium back in the opium trade do you know a lot about that history i do know a little bit i mean uh studying like you know the the history of food as well i mean it tells us a lot and uh from the islamic population of chinese it's like a very big group of people that 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 took over the world essentially i mean their blood related to like the kongs and and uh you know genghis kong and the whole movement that that took over you know, part of the world, yeah, and then it, it morphed into like the Sergics and the the um, the Mughals and you know all these uh, all these groups that just completely conquered the world, and it's this Islamic Chinese blood. Um, I think Han Han Chinese is is what it is, but yeah, um, it's also the same groups that would come down and and were part of the trade between China and Thailand early on. Uh, a lot of them stayed. And, and, you know, Pai is not even Thailand. I mean, I don't know how long Maeon Song, the province, has actually been introduced into Thailand is a, is a province. But I think it's only 60 years, 70 years at most. You know, maybe, really? Maybe it's not that long. I need to recheck the facts. But um, I, I recall, I mean, it's like I call it the wild, wild west of the, of the east because it's like 
this area is is not it's not Thailand, it's not China, it's not Burma. It's like, you know, it's this very unique melting pot. What was it before then? So Mount Song Wat was part of Shan State or part of Burma or something? I mean, I think it's before we, we started really defining lines. I mean, Burma probably thought it was theirs. China probably thought it was theirs. Thailand probably thought it was theirs. But there was no, you know... So it was just Mount Song. It the, was just... Uh, there wasn't, you know, they didn't they didn't put the borders in place. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, Pai is like such a, a bizarre place. And... Uh, yeah, it is a bizarre place, and it's yeah. full of. I mean, I won't go down a rabbit hole on yeah. it here, but um, it's you know you're the second person I've uh, interviewed from Pi, and I get a feeling there's going to be a few more. But I'm fascinated with the place, always have been, and I, I realize when I speak to other people, they just it, it's not understood from an outside perspective at all. No. Um, it's and it's changed a lot, you know. Like I say, it's because it, at the end of the day, it's a tourist destination, sure. primarily. Yeah, and it's barely like understood by the people who come through. I don't think. Uh, I don't think people have any idea what they're when they're walking into Pai and they're like, "Oh, this is Thailand." It's like, it's not your normal Thailand. It's yeah. not really Thailand. I mean, most people don't, you know. There's Thai up there that are related to the Burmese, and you know, there's so many different dialects happening. There's the Karen, the Lisu, the Lahu, the Aka. Like, you know, there's all these different tribes. There's people who just call themselves Chinese still, you know. The, yeah. the, and the Farang tribe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could almost call it that in part. I mean, there is a whole a whole tribe of uh, you know foreigners running around there too that are you you know unique, and that's what I think drew me to it towards it because it's the Same. it's the freedom of it, it's the artist community, it's the open minded. I mean, when when we started going, it was more like musicians and and artists and like you know uh, people who were going there because they they wanted a think tank and something in nature to be like. Out, out of the the normal world, you, you you know you just hit the nail on the head actually. This, I mean, what attracted me to Pi was freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, when I interviewed Frank the other week, we talked about freedom. Um, it comes up a lot, and I think you know all the people I know there. In fact, even the locals, you know, when I used to travel to Singapore and then travel back to Pi, you would see this. You know, the, the locals in the villages look so happy and free, regardless of earnings or anything else but also a lot of the foreigners who end up staying there not all but many of them are I think attracted to that kind of element of freedom and that there is a an element of creative expression that seems to have unfortunately been dissolved a little bit but that certainly was there over the years right definitely definitely <laughs> um we talked we you touched on this a couple of times culinary anthropology hopefully i just said that right it's a bit of a tongue twister but that's I mean, clearly been yeah. what's driven a lot of your um you know your experiences Travels. and your travel what do you want to just just t- tell us what culinary anthropology is for those that wouldn't understand what it is i mean i don't even know if it's a real subject it's uh is it something you studied or it's just I, I, I mean i don't think the, i don't think you can study it you okay. can study anthropology you can yeah, study yeah, culinary right. but I, I i would you know there's people there are a lot of people and uh there is a list uh, you know i, I don't want to name name them all but there's a lot of people uh who are who have dedicated their life to to understanding anthropology which is like you know the study of culture and, yeah. and humans and, and how we you know how we moved around and and what happened <laughs> why we why we are at where we're at today and uh you know it's kind of something that clicked in my mind as I used to travel pretty much only for food uh I'm you know 15 years ago before people had smartphones and, and wanted to learn about food and you traveled you know you just dive in and try to understand it um and it started 
you started having uh, flags pop up and being like, wait, what, what, where did this come from? Why am I eating this? You know, why am I in Mexico and I'm eating like, you know, something that looks like a shawarma, you know, El Pastor, you know, how did this get here? You know, and then you look back, oh, it was the Lebanese uh, migration and they ended up bringing this culture with them and, you know, they, they changed the, the food of this region in Mexico. You know, you're in Laos and they're eating like cheese and baguettes and you're like, whoa, what's going on? Why, why are we having doner kebab in Vietnam and, and <laughs> uh, you know, China, you know, there's, there's all sorts of like interesting, uh, you know, Chinese food in, in, in Lima and Peru. It's like one of their staple cuisines. It's like, how did this get here? So it started, uh, it started bringing, bringing up these, you know, these thoughts and then it, it gave me a reason to travel. I was like, okay. You know, I'm 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 fascinated with people in general, with with the history of humans, you know, of, of uh, you know culture, and then and then food. So I was like, all right, this is what it is. It's culinary anthropology. So I'm studying the anthropology through a culinary perspective. I've never heard it. I've never heard it worded like that. But actually, it's obviously a huge subject, right? I mean, yeah. It's um, I mean, yeah. And there must be a bunch of books on it. I'm sure. I mean, probably not called culinary yeah. anthropology, but certainly books on that books on travel and, and food and the relationship between culture and food and definitely and uh you made me think actually as you're talking uh, two things come up as you're talking actually uh were you a Bourdain fan yeah of course yeah right because as you're talking I'm like he kind of uh personified yeah. what you're going on about actually didn't he I wasn't a massive fan but of the the few episodes the, the few things I did see he, he certainly personified that whole kind of combination of travel and food and culture although the combination of those three things yeah I mean he you know he always inspired me as well and, and you know for multiple reasons I've read I've read a lot of his books dating back to before like Kitchen Confidential and the ones that are popular I started you know reading some of his early ones and just like you know it's he had his own story he had his own thing yeah. and he definitely opened the eyes of the world to like understanding you know what's out there and allowing people to go and, and, and or encouraging them to go and, and try these things. I mean, he had his own take on it as well. It was about him in these places, mm. which, you know, I, I was always more interested about me observing what's happening in these places and having it more be about the people and then the story behind it. Yeah. Um, and there, there are a lot of books. There's a lot of people, you know, producing content, but unfortunately a lot of it's very, very dense and a lot of it's stuff you'd study in, you know, university and professors would be lecturing you on and, and it's uh, very, very, you know, very dense yeah. uh, information. And I started collecting books and reaching out to some people that, you know, National Geographic workers and people that actually, you know, had this, uh, you know, had the, the knowledge and, and understanding of, of, you know, anthropology from a culinary perspective. Um, but I always wanted to and when I kind of like dedicated, you know, of part of my life to it maybe 10 years ago I decided to really dive into this you know I want to produce a you know a book and, and maybe a pilot and, and uh, get a get a show going or something and allow it to be like all this information but easier to digest from like a normal person's perspective like yeah. somebody like myself who grew up like you know not traditionally educated and, and uh, spent most of my life like you know teaching myself or like learning through doing um, I think there's a lot of people who love and fascinated by this information but 
you know, when they pick up some of these books that I've read, I'm just like, whoa, like, I wouldn't read this unless I was truly fascinated by it. And I think you could sum up this book in, like, you know, five pages. Yeah. Uh, for the average person who doesn't want to get into all the very technical, you know, details of it. But Do you think it's, um, it's I mean, it's a really interesting subject. It, do you think it's something that will get lost in terms of, I mean, that... You mentioned before, you know, you go to a country, I think you used the example of Doner Kebab in yeah, Vietnam, Vietnam yeah. but, you know, I suppose the generation that come through today will not, you know, they don't think about travel in the same way, they don't think about borders in the same way, because, I mean, I can remember working in England, I worked in a restaurant pub years ago, our, our um, boss, who's a chef, went off to Thailand, I remember came back, he taught us to make... Thai red and green curry mm. and it was like there was no Thai restaurants then this is 30 just under 30 years ago there were no Thai restaurants in the UK at that point or yeah. at least if there were you'd have had to go to London and spend a fortune because it would have been novelty yeah, now yeah. there's a Thai <laughs> restaurant at every corner kids don't really yep. even think about you know do, do you think it True. do you think these connections to the origins w w are being lost um, and there I mean you know the study of this subject is probably going to be a you know, a really important area, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, I think things are being lost, but not in a... Not necessarily in a bad way. They're being, you know, the, the degrees of separation are, are closer. So at the same time, people are more, you know, more open. And they don't know what that means to even be open because they yeah. might have grown up with it. You know, I always use this example in Thailand because, you know, a lot of the Thai, 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 Thai people are, are you know, one track. They, they yeah. eat Thai food, you know. Why, why there's like this separation of foreigners and Thai people in any way is because there's always been. Yeah. Thailand's always been a very Thai country, you know. It's never technically been colonized. It's, it's kind of stayed out of the, you know, it, it's allowed people to come but not to like settle you know you can't get come here and get a green card you know it's very difficult to be a foreigner and actually like live here full time yeah. and I think that allows uh, you know it allows preservation of Thai culture but at the same time it allows like this jadedness of for them to not understand what the rest it's, of the world is like it's an interesting contrast isn't it to yeah. where you and I come from I mean when, when I say that I mean the west and you look at the US or look at the UK I mean it's just here I look at that you know as cultural significance as their preservation of the culture I don't have any issue with the fact I'm yeah. kind of in, in many ways second class well, that's, um, that's it's just the way it is great. whereas I realise back in our own country yeah. it's it's almost a reversed yeah. situation there's probably a medium in between that makes a lot more sense for both sides definitely I mean it's funny because the, they'll look at us and be like can you eat this or in Thailand like it's spicy and you're like um yeah, I grew up like with Mexicans. Yeah. I was eating whole jalapenos in the kitchen. My best friends were, you know, all mi not just one culture, but mixes of cultures. You know, I grew up with like Chinese Jamaicans and like my best friend was Chinese Jamaican, you know, and, uh, you know, I had another friend who was Jamaican and Mexican, uh, a Vietnamese like uh, English. You know, I had all these, you know, a very uh, wide group of friends and, 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 and just, you know, I thought it was normal. Yeah. So for when I'm approached by this, like it's almost this ignorance, not necessarily in a bad way, but it's like they're scared of things that are foreign. And we live in a world that's like very, you know, very mixed and melted. So at the same time, like it's it's weird for me, and especially somebody who spent so much of my time moving around the world and 
educating myself about different cultures and cuisines and you know uh, spirituality and different you know studies that it's interesting when people are very like I need this all the time. I need one category of food. I need one category of music. You're also a chef. Yeah. <laughs> so you, things like that would get on your, of get your back up, yeah. I'm sure. You're a yeah. lover of yeah. cuisine. Everything, and... yeah. So it's it's kind of strange. Like I have Thai friends who travel to like Europe. They'll go to France and they're just eating Thai food the whole time. Yeah, right. And I'm just like, like did you even try any I, of these actually, spots? Or? Yeah, I mean, this is a, I don't think this is a Thailand thing. I mean, I got a lot of English mates who literally... English people, I mean, English food is not known for spreading around the world well, and English people in the same way. Yes. Uh, you know, a lot of guys, or guys and girls who've lived in the same town their whole life. It's a good point. They come will, on will vacation. They not eat anything though. but their meat yeah. and veg. Yeah, you know? eat, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I think uh, I, I always call like the US like the land of nothing sacred. So we have this spread of, of just, it doesn't matter. And, and I think one of the things that I, I'm attracted to about this, like, culinary anthropology subject is the fact that you know there's so many people are just ignorant of what's going on yeah. and what they're eating and they're like there's like racism and this like aggression and people are like you know everyone has this like perspective of, of how it should be and why we shouldn't you know blend things and you know uh, at the same time like everything's already blended it's already happened like it's too late for you to like you know question that or even you know question the food you eat and be like I only want to eat this I was like well, where'd that come from even you know even our languages even English it's like you know dramatic and Latin mixed together so there's all the and you know it's just if you haven't written this book you need to because it's yeah there, <laughs> there's a great there's a book in there all those parallels between food and culture and yeah issues with uh, social issues with mixing cultures and issues where people don't like mix certain foods so, yeah. yeah I mean it needs to be I think people need to be educated as well and just like why you know where we're at in the world and that we don't need to you know we don't need to think a certain way mm. and just educate people because it's always interesting everyone's so proud there's this uh you know patriotic like attitude about being proud about stuff and it's like it's so it's so ironic i mean in the u.s is like one of the most ironic too because it's like people are like this is our land i was like it's taken from native americans you know it's like this is our food i was like it's borrowed from like five different places you i know? think there's a massive irony about patriotism which is you know, one of the one of the one of the main things you do not choose is where you were born, <laughs> and yet people are so proud of it. Yeah, I mean, there's it's a just, certain. Uh, it's good to be proud about certain things, but at the same yeah. time, like, don't let it affect your your general livelihood and and how you deal with other people because it's like it's completely like you know ignorant and and I I you know I've had to not let it bother me these certain subjects instead of just kind of like laugh about it and 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 you know maybe try to educate people when they get very like this is this i mean even thai food you know thai people are always talking about this is thailand it's like thailand's a blend of things as well mm. and we're also taught the histories that people want us to be taught so like we don't know you know we're talking about this food is so thai i was like well that kind of came from vietnam during this era and they you know they thaiified it they thaiify everything but it's like what we all do we take something and then we claim it as ours you know nobody's giving credit to the right people yeah. You know, look at like Europe. Like I always joke about Europe because it's like Europe must have been a a complete, you know, hellhole before a lot of the influences from other parts of the world. You know, they were living in the dark ages, literally, you know, when Thailand or, you know, Mexico and, and some of these like, you know, the the older, you know, cultures were thriving and living, you know, when the Europeans arrived to South America, 
you know, they were like in the heyday. Like it was like streets. Like uh, there's a spot in in Bolivia, Paz. It was like the richest city in the world. Everything was like paved in silver. They built their houses out of silver. It was like educated, you know, f- philosophers. Like, you know, they had all this, and, and and the people that were coming to conquer them were, you know, barbaric and and you know, just uneducated to a certain extent. Yeah. You know, and even the Islamic culture of like everything that came from the Berbers and the Moors into Europe that spread like, you know, not only like science and math and you know agriculture. You know, all these, there's so much that came into it and people didn't even realize. You know, it's like they penetrated like Andalusia and Spain and Portugal and that completely changed like the history. You know, talk about the Ottomans and like, you know, Turkey, that completely changed the history. I think it's going to be, um, it'll be interesting to see where Thailand is in 10, 15, 10, 15 years yeah. from now, I think, because it's going to, I mean, it, it, it's no secret how much change this place is going through at the moment. Sure. So I think a lot of those influences are probably yet to come so. yeah um what, what would you recommend if someone's coming to this country um never been before or never really experienced it properly you know what and from a food angle what should someone do you know if they're they're coming into thailand for the first time what are the things and i don't mean <clears throat> at a dish level but yeah you know to experience the food and culture of thailand or culture through the food you know what's what's the best way I mean that's a that's a tough and easy question at the same time. I mean honestly, it's a it first starts with the personality and how you accept things because yeah. you got to be open minded to step into any culture and absorb anything good about it. Because if you're stuck in your ways when you when you when you get welcomed to a new country, it's it's going to completely change your experience. Um, you know, one thing you know I'll mention quickly is the dying art of Thai cuisine. Because we're going through this this renaissance period almost that that Thailand's growing and it's becoming more, you know, sophisticated or not sophisticated. It's like more technologies coming in, more infrastructure. You know, it's like supposed to be the head of like the Asian like, you know, group and community. Like we there's there's a lot of things they should be pushing to do right now, and in that you know comes convenience and comes you know all the things that that have destroyed other you know cultures and countries. You know like. Uh, you know monocultures growing like one thing like like right now with the burning and the pollution in the north it's corn um, instead of having a permaculture vibe that actually is, can contribute to rehabilitating the land um, you know money money comes it changes the how people look at their businesses you know I call I call 90% of the restaurants you see in Thailand now like macro food because it, it literally they go to macro yeah. They buy all their little bottles of sauce. They buy all their noodles. They buy everything that before people didn't have access to, they would have to make. And now people, everything tastes the same. Mm. And it's all based on the fact that, you know, they're using all the same ingredients. Does they're, that go right down corn. to the street food level or are you just talking? Oh, definitely the street food level is, is almost the most affected by it because so it's, I, it's Yeah, because I was, thought you people. might say, you know, go for street food, but you... So even to get that authentic, it's hard to kind of get the authentic. It's way harder than it used to be. Yeah. And it, that's based on the rise of the middle class. So people make money. They want to keep making money. They, they want to cut, you know, some of the work out that they used to have to deal with before. So they substitute. Um, as fast as this is happening, and it's kind of a, it's been a very interesting last 10 years of where Thai food's gone. It's already coming back. Mm. So, I mean... 
you know, Thai people are very, very quick to understand. And they're also like, they follow trends. You know, the organic trend. You know, five years ago, people were like, we need more organic food. And it's like, everything used to be organic because they couldn't afford pesticides or that they had no idea what they even were. Monsanto comes in, these companies just destroyed, you know, what, what, how people perceived, you know, farming and agriculture. And already, like, people are already, like, pushing that out and saying, like, wait, let's go back. We have, like, hundreds of different kinds of rice. We have all these different, you know, heirloom ingredients and these, like, old recipes. Like, why don't we, like, people are rebirthing. There's a rebirth of, like, Thai cuisine right now. And that's going down to the street food level. And then there's also the people that just never changed. And they had, like, the sense of saying, like, let's just keep doing it the way we were doing it. And, you know, if, if you come to visit Thailand and you want to experience this, like, yes, you're going to get a lot of amazing street food everywhere. And from a, a perspective of a first-timer here, you're probably going to enjoy most of it. You know, not to say that it's bad, but, like, you'll, you will notice those similarities. Like, the best thing to do is just, you know, get off the beaten path. You know, try to go to the places that have history, that haven't changed, you know, that haven't changed what they've been doing. There's a lot of them, you know, there's still a lot of them around. Um, I don't just walk into a random place anymore and, you know, I'm not quite as adventurous as I used to be when I'd travel and, and eat everything. Um, I still eat everything, but, like, I'm not just gonna, I don't trust everyone, you know. I don't want to go eat, like, hormone-injected, like, CP pork or, like, you know, um, organ or vegetables that you have no idea where they're, you know, they're grown because there's zero regulation you know you can taste the, the chemical in it mm -hmm. it's uh you know not that you know it's changing let's see how it goes but just be you know stay off the beaten path yep and you know in the land of of uh, smartphones and google uh you know you can do a little research as well it doesn't hurt um but definitely venture out to the smaller places the places that aren't as uh you know commercialized and you know, there's all all these great areas that if you go, you're still gonna find the real food because they, you know, they they don't know any other way. Cool. This uh this next question could be, it could it could be a conversation stopper. It could be a conversation stopper. I got got to ask it. Being a uh, being a chef, we're talking about um, culture, food. What what is your view on the whole uh, food selfie? phenomenon which seems to be the, the interesting thing for me is i i, I think i mean it's global right but mm -hmm. but here it is it's incredible the the need to take a picture of every dish and, and i've got no problem with it personally it's not something i do but i i just wonder if you had any views on it whether it's something you understood the motivation behind or you, you know at first i just thought oh yeah people are taking pictures of their food but i'm now like wow this is this is huge. I mean, and in this country, you go out, you know, but the, the, yeah. if, I, if I go it's out, I cannot eat driven. before, you know, various people are taking pictures of their oh, food. Yeah, it's like, it's like sacrilegious. Like, it's like, you can't, you get, you'll get hurt trying to eat something before it gets a, a good photo in. Um, how do I feel about that? Like, the psychology behind it, I suppose, is my question, really. If you have any, if you have no opinion on it, don't worry. We can just, I mean, I think like it's, I, say, I think so. it's not just food, I think it's everything. And I think we're in this in a world of like, you know, th this social aspect of everything controls everything, and it's all like jaded and fake. It's a shell. It's a, 
you know, it's a confident booster. It's a, you know, it, it, it allows you to get into circles of uh, acceptance with, you know, people. If you're a foodie, then you become a foodie. If you're, you know, if so you're it's a, just a, it's a, it's if you're just a fashion, you're a fashion a person. A byproduct of the selfie culture. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a byproduct of the self- selfie culture. And then it also, you know, food has become such a trend. You know, it's become, uh, you know, with the... St- start of like star chefs in the 90s and you know before that even when people would glorify it you know working in restaurants isn't a thing to glorify necessarily and i grew up in a culture of like it's a job yeah and it's a difficult job and it's shitty hours man shitty hours it's low pay you know it's not it's not good and it's not something that it's a job for misfits or it's a job for people who don't have a you know who need who need a helping hand? It allows anyone to go in. Uh, a friend of mine put it. You know, working in restaurants is like, you know, working on a pirate ship. It's completely chaotic and just, uh, you know, there's a lot a lot going on. Yeah, right. But I don't know. I think it's a. Uh, it does kind of bother me because it takes away from being present. Um, but then, like, where do you draw the line? I mean, you should really be taking pictures of your finished plate, I suppose, if you're really appreciating the finished I'm the opposite. Like, I don't take pictures of anything that I, I cook normally. Uh, and I should. Um, and I also don't really take pictures of... You know, I'm selective now on what I take pictures of. And it's also something that I've been doing, you know, before smartphones. You know, I've, I've been to almost 70 countries now, and, and every country I've been to has been for food. You know, and this is like... You know, when I started traveling in 2004, I went to Europe, 2005, I came to Asia, you know, I've been to Mexico before that and Latin America, like, you know, before I got looked at crazy when I used to travel and take pictures of every everything I ate. I'd be in the markets, I'd be in the slums in like, you know, the favelas in Brazil or like places that people were just shocked that I'm out there just like snapping photos of everything I ate. Yeah. You know, and then everything, but this is like, you know, research. Yeah. So it's funny that it came to, to you know, it came full circle and now everyone's taking pictures of everything and they're doing it. I don't even, you know, they're doing it just to show other people that they did it. And like, that's kind of like, okay, that's cool. But is, you know, how much of that time is taken away from like, you know, caring about your family or, or actually like, you know, things or that enjoying the moment, enjoying of, the moment, actually being with the, eating the food. And yeah, yeah, this is a, um, this is a, yeah, I mean, this is a smartphone yeah. wide phenomenon anyway isn't it yeah like it's a right? tool yeah it's a tool you know you could use a gun to hunt or you could use a gun to you know shoot your your friend on accident it's uh you know it's the same you know i guess we all have to be a little more conscious of like why we're doing it and, and you know how much we should do it we all need to be our own boss and and you know regulate ourselves but i don't know for years it kind of not bothered me but i'm like it kind of makes me feel weird about taking pictures of food when I'm still like when trying it's your to job. Yeah. yeah when I'm still diving into the the things that I, I'm trying to educate myself on and um, yeah I'm surprised there's not a as you I'm like is there not a app out there now that's a, a selfie food rating app there probably is actually probably, I'm probably. sure there must be I mean I should have you know my only regret is I didn't capitalize on this you know when I when I saw <laughs> it coming I should have uh, you know I should have got involved in, in some kind of business. You know, aspect that would have allowed me to capitalize on my my uh, premature or like early ahead of the curve uh, food documentation. <laughs> oh, 
hindsight is a wonderful thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, we'll get back to coffee. We're, we're drawing. We're getting towards the end. We we, we started on coffee. Um, my business partner actually had a question. I didn't ask you before whether you know anything about this. So if you don't, that's fine. Just uh, boot me out of the. But just just throw it back at me. But bullet. Do you know anything about bulletproof coffee? Is this a subject? I do. I mean, I know. I know what it is. I. I There's I, some controversy around it, right? Yes. Which is talking about I'll actually look at my notes um, the mycotoxins right so this is it's about he asked me because he, he's a he's a bit of a coffee lover and the, there's this whole bulletproof coffee uh, talk about having the only coffee that doesn't have these molds growing on these mycotoxins so even if you don't know you probably know about some of the molds or yeah it's yeah you know anything about this or is it a um I mean, I understand why bulletproof coffee could be a, why it's a, a trend and why it's, you know, interesting. I think a lot of it's like the adding the fat to it as well. It's like the ghee or the coconut oil or something, you know, it's because coffee's fat soluble. Yeah. So I think uh, by adding a fat into it, a lot of the, you know, you're, you're like solidifying it. You're getting a lot of the nutrient and like the nutritional benefits of coffee into the cup um as far as like the molds and and the you know i think there's a lot to be said about that because i i don't know because people are calling it bulletproof coffee but they still where are they buying their beans you know how is it prepared like i think there's a lot of steps to it that people might not be missing and i think there's a big part of it that's still a trend they were the claims he was making is that they're the only bean i think that avoid this certain the, these certain molds on coffee beans that they're claiming are on every other bean, but I don't know. It's, I mean, where are they getting the beans from? Who's the farmer? I mean, a yeah, lot, a lot of enough. beans you could be, you could test it all. I mean, there's always these, uh, these amounts of like mildew or mold in coffee because it's an agricultural product, and it's also like, you know, the processing of it's very, you know, complicated of how you dry it and and everything. Um, but at the same time, like you're roasting at temperatures of 220 degrees Celsius and, you know, high temperatures that are pretty much killing anything. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, Bulletproof Coffee is, a, is the brand itself or is the beverage. I think it's two different things as well. Yeah, it is two different things, I think. Because so. yeah. Bulletproof Coffee is like adding the fats into the coffee to get the benefits from the coffee. Yeah, this bullet, and I look, it's not, I literally just looked it up before. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. If we don't know it, yeah. let's not worry about no, it. No, I, don't, I so. mean, I'm not, I'm not, you well, know, I'm, I, we'll feel like it's a, I feel like it's a trend. And uh, I'm also like a purist and a traditionalist, so yeah. I, I love seeing like, you know, I, I eat as well. You know, if I'm trying to get like the benefits of my meals uh, by, you know, introducing all these different things into it, I don't need to put it in my coffee. You know, I'm putting in my food and my diet. I'm conscious of what I'm consuming. Um, you know, but I, I think you know. There's. I'd love to. I'd love to hear more about it from a, a professional's perspective. Well, we'll share something. Yeah, we'll share something outside of the podcast. Yeah. I'll maybe link you to my. Cool. We'll 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 find out a bit more. Um, yeah, we're we're kind of drawing to the end. Anything I haven't asked you that you want to talk about that's interesting, related to anything, the business, <laughs> Thailand, whatever. No, I mean, I think we, we bounced around and it was fun. I, I always really, uh, I've obviously been in the coffee business for a while now, but I'm kind of outside of the coffee world. Yeah. 
Um, the reason I'm in coffee is, you know, because of the, the science of it, I, I really appreciate it. And then the agriculture is one of the biggest things I, I, I respect about it. And then also the fact that it's, you know, it's about improving the quality of, of Thai coffee and it's also about empowering the community. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's pretty much why I'm in it. It's, it's something that I, I really love to, to work with the farmers. I love to see their, you know, their perspective of, of what they're doing and how it's changing. And I love to see the progression. I mean, Thai coffee's come a long way in the last five years. I mean, from, from the rankings of the, you know, of actually where it's ranking in, in the world of coffee and the, the points it's getting on the scale and, and, and that it's finally competing in the specialty coffee realm of having anything over like 85 points is considered like specialty coffee. Uh, this year there was a couple 90 point you know there was a cool. 91 uh, and this is like what you know Ethiopian coffees are rating and you know some geishas and these like very high end specialty coffees from around the world so it's it's cool to see it on the you know on the up and up cool so if people want to find out more I mean you, you're 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 running a business you're roasting beans you're selling to um, restaurants to to businesses yeah you're, you're in the distribution space as well if people want to learn more about your your coffee you they want they can di- contact you directly yeah um i know i was around here the other day you did <laughs> you know a wonderful kind of tasting session which was great i mean yeah so yeah just do you want to just leave some details of how people can get hold of you and learn a bit more about uh what you do about the company yeah of course um i mean basically left hand roasters is my my brand and uh it's more about the non-conventional path to coffee so it's, it's uh, farmer-driven, like I mentioned. It's about empowering the communities that are, are producing the coffee and educating the consumer uh, about where the coffee has come from and why it costs what it costs and, and all the steps and love that's gone into it because it's not just, you know, coffee is not just a, a, a something in a bag. You know, there's, there's more to it. Um, but, yeah, my, my business is directed towards hotels, restaurants that I want to see people replace imported coffee with local options. To awesome. People should be empowering, you know, the the local market. We should be using whatever we can locally. Um, so I've been targeting some of the higher profile restaurants, uh, just to name a couple, Paste in Bangkok, La Normandie um, are the two big ones, you know, being Michelin star restaurants in Bangkok that are using my coffee right now. Uh, and there's a lot more to follow. Um, yeah, and otherwise I'm more of an e-commerce, so you can buy online. You can send me an email directly, uh, Dustin at lefthandroasters.com. Uh, you can check out the website, lefthandroasters.com. Cool. Um, yeah. We'll leave, um, look, when I do the write-up, we'll, I'll leave the details on there. And, cool. And uh, yeah, people can get hold of you directly. So, yeah, thanks for, for joining me on the Task Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Man. Yeah, really appreciate it. Was, it was fun. Cool. Yeah, Cheers.